On December 29, 2019, four individuals showed up at a hospital in Wuhan, China. All had pneumonia and worked in a particular seafood and live animal market, which was enough of a coincidence to pique the interest of local health experts. Tonight, the first confirmed U.S. case of that mysterious virus tracked here to Washington state. A man in his 30s diagnosed five days after returning home to Seattle from Wuhan, China. Good evening. The city at the heart of the public health crisis in China is shutting its public transport network to try to prevent the spread of a virus that's already infected hundreds of people. In one of the most troubling hotspots here in the country, the coronavirus in Washington state now reporting at least 15 deaths more than any other state in the country. And most of those cases coming from the life care nursing home. My fellow Americans, Tonight, I want to speak with you about our nation's unprecedented response to the coronavirus outbreak that started in China and is now spreading throughout the world. Today, the World Health Organization officially announced that this is a global pandemic. And while we deal with the growing emergency here at home, for many, the crisis is already in full swing. The most active hotspot right now is Italy. Nearly 200 people there have died in just the last 24 hours. Airports have been empty for several days, and now all stores except for pharmacies and food markets will be closed. Breaking news here on CBS Sports HQ, and it is monster news. The NBA has suspended the season after Rudy Gobert has tested positive for coronavirus. Perhaps the most high-profile coronavirus patients yet, Tom Hanks announcing overnight that he and wife Rita Wilson are both infected. We direct a statewide order for people to stay at home. That directive goes into force and effect this evening. And we were confident, we are confident that the people of the state of California will abide by it. Who can forget those strange, uncertain times? January through March of 2020, when the news bombarded all of us with images of hazmat suits, empty stores, and full hospitals. The media, the government, the medical establishment warned us that millions could die, that hospitals would be overrun if we didn't all stay home. They had a catchy slogan, 15 days to slow the spread. Looking back reminds us of how little we knew about the virus. This was before the days of masks, before we knew anything about asymptomatic spread. And when the idea of a vaccine mandate was an absurd conspiracy theory, no one really knew how dangerous this new virus was. And churches across America canceled in-person services starting on Sunday, March 15th. And Grace Community Church was one of them. It is a joy to be able to come to you this morning in this fashion and uh, to direct your thoughts toward the things of the Lord in a time of uh, trouble, a time of trial, a time of, uh, for some people, a certain amount of danger and the reality of mortality faces all of us in a, in a time like this. And the place to go is to the Word of God, and that's what I want to do this morning. These are John MacArthur's opening remarks from his sermon on March 15th. 
days after Los Angeles County's first stay-at-home order mandated that churches not gather for in-person services. I remember sitting with just a few of the elders of the church. There was a sparse number of people in the worship center. The sound team was there and a few stragglers. The normally packed worship center felt cavernous, empty, and strange. To begin with, let me remind you of something that Job's friend Eliphaz said. He said this. He was right. He said, man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. As surely as sparks off a fire fly upward, man is born for trouble. Trouble is certain and trouble is relentless. Life is dangerous. In fact, there is nothing more certain than the fact that we're all going to die. That alone is the certainty of life. In that sense, life is a terminal illness. Life is a fatal condition. Life is a deadly disease. Those were the days we all learned to be homeschoolers. We became home-based gourmet chefs. Traffic was suddenly vanquished from Los Angeles. I could drive from my house near Burbank to Santa Monica in 20 minutes. But it was also days of unprecedented crisis. People started hoarding toilet paper. So there's a shortage of toilet paper, and it's due basically to everyone being stuck at home. At the time, we all thought COVID-19 was the story. We assumed that in the coming weeks and months, this was going to be a fight between man and virus between doctors and broken lungs, between science and nature. But that's not the fight we got. What followed March 15th, that surreal Sunday where government first told churches not to gather, would become a battle between fear and faith, between Grace Community Church and Los Angeles County, between Pastor John MacArthur and California Governor Gavin Newsom. The story this episode tells is not about Fauci, vaccines, or masks. It's about church and state. Those early days of 2020 gave individual Christians a lesson in political theology that many were not ready for. And we all had to address questions like, what is the relationship between the church and civic authorities? When must the church obey the government? And when must she resist? Get answers today as we look at lockdowns, government overreach, and what MacArthur has said for decades about the Christian's relationship with civil authority. My name is Austin Duncan. I'm the director of the MacArthur Center for Expository Preaching at the Master's Seminary. And this is season two of the podcast from the center, The Entrusted, The Convictions and Legacy of John MacArthur. Jesus said, I am the way, the This episode, the seventh of season two, is titled MacArthur and the Government. We're going to begin this story with a simple three-part outline, most of which I plagiarized from my friend Jesse Johnson, who you'll hear from throughout this episode. 
He has a new book, City of Man, Kingdom of God, subtitled, Why Christians Respect, Obey, and Resist Government. Part 1. Obeying the Government Just a few days after MacArthur's March 15th sermon to a nearly empty worship center, I spoke with him on new technology called Zoom. It was the MacArthur Center's first official interview, still available on YouTube. I wanted to ask John about shepherding people through uncertain times and the challenges of preaching. Even in those early days, there was growing division in churches over how to respond to the crisis. As COVID became more and more of a threat, John was a bulwark of courage and stability. He never panicked or showed an ounce of fear. And I wanted him to help preachers lead with the same courage and conviction. Shepherding the, the flock of God is my first responsibility. Uh, and that's what I've done the last couple of Sundays. Um, it's like a family. The kids pick up the attitude of the parents and the congregation picks up the attitude of the pastor. If you're at peace, calm, even joyful, even even content, happy, jovial, um, that they're gonna rest, they're gonna pick that up. You can't panic. I mean, what's there to panic about? Far better to depart and be with Christ. That's That was the point of the first message where Jesus said, uh, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow is sufficient unto itself. You know, stick with what you've got today. Fear, the most, um, Challenging fears always are about the unknown. So you have to settle people down to the fact that the future is in the hands of the Lord and it's for your good and His glory. And you can't show any fear. It's good not even to be disturbed. We've had meetings. You've been part of those. And, yep. you know, we sit a little further away than we normally might do. But it's, it's pretty much just fellowship like we've always done. We're not operating in fear. Near the end of our conversation, I asked John a question about Romans 13.1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist have been appointed by God. His answer would show up on CNN a few months later. This is a government um, law, government mandate. Um, be good citizens. Um, we're to be compliant to the government. We're to submit to the government. We're to live quiet and peaceable lives. We don't rebel. We're not obstinate. We don't fight against the government. We submit because this is not persecution. You say, well, what about Acts 5 where they said, don't preach the gospel. And Peter said, who do we obey, God or men? And went right out and preached. If, if persecution comes and they target us and say, you can't meet, you can't preach, you can't proclaim the gospel, then we say we have to obey God because we have a divine mandate. This is not persecution of the church. This is government law for the greater good of the population. The, the motive here is um, to help people, to save people, to secure people, uh, so that more people don't die than the will die anyway. To to defy that, to say we don't care, you know, whether people die, we, we don't care about the safety of the population. That, that is a foolish thing to do. That is not noble to do that. It's not noble to say, well, we're going to meet whatever the government says. That is the kind of defiance that makes Christianity look anything but loving. Alongside Romans 13, 
There are lots of other passages that command Christians to submit to government, including 1 Timothy 2, which says Christians must pray for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Whoever resists the government is rebelling against God. Robert Haldane, wonderful commentator, writing back in 1839, said, The people of God then ought to consider resistance to the government under which they live as a very awful crime, even as resistance to God Himself. That's from a 2011 sermon titled, Why Christians Submit to the Government. And here's an excerpt from a 1989 sermon on 1 Peter 2.13, Submission to Civil Authority, Part 1. There have been many protests, many acts of civil disobedience, many violations of the law, many revolutions, many insurrections, and many subversive attempts to overthrow governments. Are you ready for this in the name of Christianity? That's tragic. We are never commanded to do that. The command is simple. Submit yourselves. Submit yourself. From his early days at Grace Church until today, John MacArthur has always said what the Bible says, that Christians submit to government. We don't start an insurrection. We don't reject our leader's authority. We understand that whatever kind of government, God has appointed its leaders, and Christians are to obey them, respect them, and pray for them. A few weeks ago, I traveled to Washington, D.C. to visit my good friend and TMS alum, Jesse Johnson. He's the pastor of Emmanuel Bible Church in Springfield, Virginia, just a few miles from the nation's capital. Jesse and I walked around the National Mall and had a conversation on the steps of the Jefferson Memorial. We talked about why Christians should be grateful for the government and gladly submit to it. So we're here in the Jefferson Memorial. The Jefferson Memorial is by the Tidal Basin in Washington, D.C. And the Tidal Basin really is the, the heart of this place. On one side of it, you have the Lincoln Monument. On the other side, right in the middle, you have the Washington Monument. You've got Congress uh, over on the, on the right here. And then across the water, you have the White House. So from this spot, you can really see all of that. And you'll notice that they're all looking at each other. So Congress is facing down towards the White House. Lincoln is sitting on his chair. He's looking up towards Congress. And then Jefferson, he's casting the stink eye over at the White House right now. So everybody is keeping each other accountable. The thing that, that's notable to me, government is a marvelous thing. And it's not just the, the marble columns and you know the fall colors that we're, we're seeing here or the Lincoln Monument. There's, there's something... There's something incredible about governance. And, and I think that people don't get that right now because they think government is power and power is bad. But government is actually an invention, not of man, but of God. God did invent government, and that's described in Genesis, specifically chapters 8 and 9. Uh, as Noah comes off the ark, God builds, uh, commands them really to institute this concept of government where if you shed man's blood by man's hand shall your blood be 
shed, but that's not the only function of government. You know, God designed government to protect the food source. You know, he had the animals in the ark and they're supposed to go across, across the world, be fruitful, multiply, mankind's supposed to subdue them. Uh, God designed government to protect the family. Now, that's the be fruitful and multiply part. He designed government to protect worship. You know, the first thing Noah did when he got off the ark was worship God. And so when God institutes the, the sword of human government, that's to protect those freedoms that he gave us. I think it's huge to understand that freedoms do not come from government. Freedoms come from God. The freedom to have a family, the freedom to have uh, worship, the, the freedom to have human life. God gives that to us and he uses government to protect us. So if you're looking to government for your freedoms, then your freedoms are only as secure as your government is. The Bible is clear. God designed government and Christians are to respect it. We thank God for it. That's a core conviction. Providentially, uh, where God turns the pages of history, you know, he appoints rulers. They stand and fall at his, at his will. And so you respect it because the emperor, in that sense, is God's agent for good. You know, their function is to bear the sword and check evil. And that uh, allows Christians to thrive. Even in a Christians in a persecuted nation, they can turn the cheek uh, when their enemy strikes them. They can turn the other cheek because they have the protection of the government that will step in with the sword and punish the wrongdoer. You need both of those to have a functioning society. And that's why Christians respect the government. Even when the government is wrong or unjust, Christians respect the government. MacArthur has always taught the biblical truth that Jesse described on the steps of the Jefferson Memorial. He's reminded Christians that government can't save you and you shouldn't put your hope in politics. His emphasis has been for Christians to obey and respect the government. But if that's what John has always believed, why did he make these headlines in the summer of 2020? In California, the battle is over church services. Pastor John MacArthur is defying Governor Gavin Newsom's new coronavirus restrictions, hosting indoor in-person services at Grace Community Church in Los Angeles County. Pastor says uh, he's apparently been warned he could face fines or even arrest if he carries on, and yet he does. Four months after the government of California restricted in-person church gatherings to slow the spread of the Rona, John MacArthur and the Grace Community Church elders, myself included, released a statement on Friday, July 24th, 2020. It was titled, Christ, not Caesar, is head of the church. Here's John with an excerpt. We cannot and will not acquiesce to a government-imposed moratorium on our weekly congregational worship or other religious corporate gatherings. Compliance would be disobedience to our Lord's clear commands. Two days later, Grace Community Church was opened, and it was packed. Obviously, this is a very special day in the life of our church family. It is for us... Um, a return to what we love the most, the fellowship of the saints and the worship of our Lord. There have been people all across the country and around the world affirming that we're gathering, thankful that we're gathering and assigning on with us. And there have been many people who don't understand why we would do this. We understand that. We understand that the world does not understand the importance of the church. The world doesn't understand that it's not just essential, it's the only hope 
of eternal life for doomed sinners. People have been very concerned to make sure people's physical lives are protected. In the process, shut down places where there's hope for their spiritual lives to be transformed that they can live eternally in the presence of God. So how did we get from... It's not noble to say, well, we're going to meet whatever the government says. To... Faithfulness to Christ prohibits us from observing the restrictions they want to impose on our corporate worship services. And that's the story of our second act. Act 2. Resisting the government. Before we get back to the story of Grace Community Church, we need to go north, way north of Los Angeles, all the way up to Edmonton, Canada, where James Coates, a TMS alumnus, pastors Grace Life Church. In the winter of 2021, he spent five weeks in a Canadian jail after Grace Life held indoor church services, defying the province of Alberta's health mandates. Here's James with a little background. So things got dicey in the fall of 2020 with the second public, de- uh, the second declared public health emergency. We had already been open at that point in time and meeting without restrictions, even though there were still guidelines in place. But with the declaration of the health emergency, that meant everything began to be enforced and enforceable. So, so we were getting complaints from the community around us. That was then drawing AHS to begin to email, phone call, and soon they were coming to our services to kind of see what was going on. AHS stands for Alberta Health Services, and they did not leave James or Grace Life alone because the congregation would not comply with the increasingly unreasonable demands. They were forcing us to meet at one-third capacity. Everyone would have had to have been masked and socially distanced, and they were even at time forbidding us to fellowship so we couldn't actually be in the presence of one another for longer than 15 minutes following the service. Um, So that was, I mean, basically they were not permitting us to meet. It was on their terms that we were allowed to be there and meet, but we were not allowed to meet on the terms that are set forth in the word of God. James and Grace Life were not being belligerent. Like most churches, they initially stepped away from indoor services. It was live stream only at Grace Life for 14 weeks from March through June. They only reopened when the health orders became guidelines. But when the guidelines returned to orders in the winter of 2020 and Grace Life kept meeting, the authorities became hostile. Everything came to a head on December 20th, the week before Christmas, when James preached a sermon titled, The Time Has Come. The bottom line is this, you gotta be ready. Children, it's time to get ready. Everyone needs to get ready. Everyone needs to get prepared. You need to be ready to let your civil liberties go. You gotta be ready to kiss this world goodbye. You gotta be ready to take a stand for the Lord Jesus Christ and to to receive whatever comes, whatever persecution comes. The, The world, many of the world is not gonna understand what we're doing. They're not gonna understand why we're doing it. And they're gonna hate us all the more for it. We know they hate us already. Others will look at it and, and they'll be thankful that we're standing, but either way, it doesn't matter. Our, our aim and ambition is to be pleasing to the Lord Jesus Christ and to be, be ready to stand on his account. And that means this, 
You need to make sure that you are settled up with God. It is time to make sure that you are ready to meet God. Yeah, the first moment that I considered jail a possibility was following the sermon that I preached on December 20th titled, The Time Has Come. Because following that sermon where I had gotten into some of the issues revolving around COVID-19 and the government response, I was asked by one of our greeters to come to the front of our building because the RCMP was there to speak with me. I didn't know why, and I wasn't given any advance notice on what the issue was. I was given a ticket at that time, but that was the first moment that jail seemed like a legitimate possibility. For the next month, Grace Life kept on meeting, and the Alberta authorities insisted they stop. This continued until February 16th, when James was ordered to turn himself into the police. He complied with that order. Once I got into prison, there was a degree of relief in all honesty because I couldn't do anything wrong while I was in prison. While I was on the outside, every time I met to gather to simply conduct a worship service, I was in trouble with the law. I couldn't do that on the inside. So there was a sense of rest and relief that came from being in prison, oddly enough. While James was in what Canadians call the Remand Center, also known as the Slammer, James heard from another government-resisting pastor. One of the most encouraging moments that took place for me very early on is, is Dr. MacArthur had um, contacted Aaron, or at least had recorded a... a a voice message that got to Aaron, I think through his daughter. And and then Aaron actually let me hear that voice message over the phone, which was incredibly encouraging for me. She even wrote word for word what he had expressed in that voicemail. And so when she wrote her first letter to me, she 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 wrote it into that letter. And so I got to read it. And that was incredibly encouraging. Probably one of the most, if not the most encouraging moments in the entire time that I was in prison. Uh, I'm so anxious that you send a message uh, back to uh, James Coates' wife and tell him how proud I am of him and um, and let her know to, to pass on to him that I've been listening to his sermons. It's just exceptionally done uh, well. And the sermon in which he defended the fact that the church is open was, was just excellent and uh, I listened to all of it. Uh, so grateful for the strength of his stand. When John reached out to James, he was facing similar threats. In July 2020, after John and the elders at Grace Church had released the statement, Christ, not Caesar, is head of the church, and fully reopened, Los Angeles County's health authorities told us that our decision to reopen would likely lead to threats, fines, and even jail time. So, Why did these two churches defy the government after initially supporting it? If Christians are supposed to submit to the government, how was it okay for these leaders and many other churches to resist the government's health and safety mandates? I think there were a number of factors that played into that decision. This is Nathan Busnitz, Executive Vice President at the Master's Seminary. He's also one of the elders who signed the statement, Christ not Caesar is head of the church. Last year, he and James published God vs. Government, taking a stand when Christ and compliance collide. 
He's talking about the decision to reopen Grace Community Church in defiance of California and LA County's health mandates. First of all, it became clear fairly quickly that the pandemic was not nearly as severe as it had been made out to be. So the initial projections sounded like something apocalyptic and it became clear quite quickly that what had been feared in terms of these massive projections of global death high mortality rate and so on that that's just not what the reality was so there was that element uh, then there was the element of the way in which the government was handling the protests starting at the end of may into early june sorry to interrupt nathan but we need to talk about those protests in may halfway between the first edition of Livestream church on march 15th and the reopening of grace church a man named george floyd was murdered in Minneapolis. What an unbelievable sight to watch unfold yesterday in Hollywood. We've now learned this morning some 50,000 people filled these streets to protest George Floyd's death and march for justice. Demonstrations over the death of George Floyd spread across six continents over the weekend. Chants of Black Lives Matter echoed from thousands of protesters in cities around the world. Elizabeth Palmer was in London for one of the largest protests. In London, joining this protest mattered far more than the lockdown rules. All of a sudden, the same government leaders that were insisting that churches stay closed were actually championing the protests in the streets, the gathering together of thousands of people to uh, march in protest. So there was this clear indication that the government was not handling the lockdowns in a way that was equitable and that played into even the constitutional protections that we have as a church so there was the reality that the pandemic was not as severe as it had been initially projected the reality that the government was not handling uh, the assembling of people together in an equitable way and as the lockdowns dragged on the medical experts supported some public gatherings, but not others. Churches across America had to reconsider how they thought about the relationship between church and government. For the first time in American history during the COVID lockdowns, we criminalized, we arrested, we shut down churches and disallowed individuals, believers, from attending their congregations, their parishes, and their churches. That's Jonathan Alexander. He's senior counsel for governmental affairs at the Liberty Council, a nonprofit law firm that specializes in pro-life, pro-family, and religious liberty cases. I sat down with him at his office near the Supreme Court, where he's working at the front lines to protect legal rights of churches and other religious institutions. There are stories all across the country of Americans and their faith being persecuted and targeted, isolated uh, to the recesses of their home, not being allowed to a fellowship with the saints or be with one another in person uh, worshiping their savior as has been an unbroken theme throughout american history and as is protected under the first amendment jonathan and the liberty council found themselves in an unprecedented situation defending the rights of churches to meet at all the church in illinois it was a romanian church uh, mainly immigrants from romania that came 
to the United States not because of its economic prosperity, but because of their ability to worship. Fleeing communist Romania, uh, many of them moving to Illinois and to Chicago. Well, they were persecuted initially by the mayor of that city. You know, in big cities, how difficult it is to find parking lot or parking spaces. This particular mayor uh, told five blocks surrounding that church uh, that none of the members of that community were able to park in front of their homes or on the streets and then blamed the church for that. Put up posters all across the five block radius from the church and said, the reason you can't park in front of your homes is because that church is still worshiping and refusing to shut down. We got into that fight initially, uh, but that mayor and the governor there in Illinois continued to turn up the knob to the extent that they sent on a Saturday uh, one of the worst letters that I've ever read uh, from a government official to a body of believers where they threatened to destroy the building brick by brick. They threatened summary abatement, which is a seldom used legal phrase uh, that says that because of the activities and the danger of the nature of activities going on within the building, that it is so dangerous the government has the right to come in and destroy it brick from brick. In the midst of such hostile treatment, churches had to reconsider their amicable relationship with the government. They had almost mindlessly been praying for so many years. Lord, thank you for the freedom we have to assemble and worship. And now that freedom was eroding. Christians also had a pithy saying that was almost sacred script to American churches. Obey the government unless they tell you to sin. I think many Americans have this idea that you obey government at all times unless the government tells you to sin. But that is a woefully inadequate understanding of government because that gives government a deference that is owed only to God, honestly. You obey God at all times and God's never gonna command you to sin. And that's how government views itself. You know, government would never say, oh, we're telling people to sin right now. Government always thinks it wants what is best for you. That idea that you obey government at all times unless it tells you to sin, that comes from the Augsburg Confession of Faith. That's a Lutheran understanding of government. That is not the historic uh, reformed understanding of government. That's not the Puritans' view of government, obviously. They're not, it's not the nonconformist view of government. They're called nonconformists for this exact reason. Um, so I think a better view of government is, is the one that's described by Paul in Romans 13, that government is established for particular purposes, to check evil, protect the family, protect life, etc. When government is functioning for the purpose God made it, it, you obey it and you submit to it. When government steps outside of that purpose, now it's a conscience issue. And that's what Paul says in Romans 13. Uh, if your conscience condemns you, then then obey it. But if your conscience is free, you're free. And you don't judge other Christians for that either. Sometimes you obey government because you want to go to jail. If the government passes a nonsensical law, you might comply because you don't want to do, you know, don't do the crime if you don't want to do the time. And Paul gets that in Romans 13 also. But that's very different than saying obey the government unless the government tells you to sin. And that's not the New Testament ethic towards government. I asked Jesse at what point the government overstepped its authority in 2020. His response is helpful as we think about when it's appropriate for Christians to resist. When the government tells churches that they cannot gather for congregational worship, you don't have to obey those rules. There was even, if you remember early in COVID-19, there was even this whole thing that you couldn't sing in church. You know, that's a pretty flagrant violation of what the, the probably the Bible's most common commands is either fear God or sing to God, uh, depending on how you count them. I mean, you could make a very strong argument that 
the command to worship God with your voice is so frequent in scripture, you're compelled to obey congregationally. And so the government forbids that for really flimsy, flimsy reasons. You know, they're passing around stories like, oh, there was a choir in Washington that, you know, they sang together and all of them got COVID kind of thing. You start looking into those those anecdotes and you realize it's not even true. Uh, that's certainly not a good justification for barring congregational worship nationwide. And so I think at that point, Christians had the freedom, as Paul describes in Romans 13, uh, to gather for worship, even though the government's telling them not to. That's not a valid use of government to restrict congregational worship. Yeah, the Lord Jesus himself identified a distinction between the church and the state in Matthew chapter 22, verse 21, where he famously says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, render to God the things that are God's. So there's a, a distinction that our Lord himself makes between what we would call the secular sphere, the sphere of civil government, and the sacred sphere, that of the church. We might add to that, I think the New Testament adds to that, a third sphere, that of the home and of the family. And so when we talk about these spheres of authority or spheres of influence, what we're saying is that within the realm of the secular and the civil, God has ordained government as the authority. Within the realm of the sacred, within the realm of the church, God has appointed elders within each local congregation as the authority. And I think we see that in places like 1 Peter 5, verses 1 to 4. And then within the home, God has ordained parents to be the authority. The key is that within each of these spheres of authority, there are certain boundary lines, certain jurisdictions, such that the government doesn't have the right to tell parents how to parent. And the government doesn't have the right to tell pastors how to pastor. That's government overstepping its boundaries. In this current case, the government has far overstepped its God-given jurisdiction. And when that happens, it is right for the church to stand up and say, hey, when it comes to what we believe, how we as a church gather, these are things that we are accountable directly to Christ for. And so with all due respect to the government, you have no jurisdiction over the church. That's exactly what Grace Community Church did in the summer of 2020. The elders respectfully informed government authorities that... Therefore, in response to the recent state order requiring churches in California to limit or suspend all meetings indefinitely, we, the pastors and elders of Grace Community Church, respectfully inform our civic leaders that they have exceeded their legitimate jurisdiction and faithfulness to Christ prohibits us from observing the restrictions they want to impose on our corporate worship services. And to no one's surprise, the government did not appreciate the church's decision to reopen. The county sent health inspectors every week. They confiscated a parking lot Grace Church had been leasing for decades. They went to court and got a preliminary injunction that would restrain the church from, quote, conducting, participating in, or attending any indoor worship services, close quote. When we didn't comply, they issued citations, lots of them. I recently looked at a few. The health department cited us for not having enough signage. 
They cited us for not enforcing mask mandates or taking people's temperatures. They cited us because there were more than 250 people in our worship center, which has a 3,000 person capacity, by the way. They demanded social distancing, directional arrows that would tell people which way to walk to avoid crowds. They expressed horror when believers would fellowship. And they threatened John MacArthur and the elders with fines and jail time if all this normal church stuff did not stop. Meanwhile, Grace Church tried not to be belligerent. We had built a massive, expensive, circus-like tent in the parking lot. People were encouraged to sit outside if they felt more comfortable or stay home if they were sick. The elders were not going to use their spiritual authority to mandate the health department's constantly changing rules. They weren't going to force people to sit outside, to social distance, or forbid them from hugging and singing and gathering. We were in contempt of court because we didn't follow the mandate. And uh, with contempt of court came a fine every week and a jail sentence. So week by week by week, we were accumulating fines and jail sentences on the contempt issue, and we were accumulating what they called health tickets, fines from the health department, and they just kept accumulating and accumulating. And I can't remember the, the all the details, but it became apparent that we had to get the government off our back, so we decided to sue the state of California and the county of Los Angeles to stop them from this encroachment, because they were making these demands on us. So the government sued Grace Church, and in return, Grace Church sued the government for violating the church's First Amendment rights. The dueling lawsuits snaked their way through the courts without any resolution until the Supreme Court stepped in. Tonight, the faithful are praising the Lord and the Supreme Court after the justices lifted California's ban on indoor worship services. Jonathan Alexander and the Liberty Council were part of that now famous Supreme Court case. They defended Harvest Church, a congregation in Pasadena, who, like Grace Church, had not gone along with California's ban on indoor worship services. In L.A. County, uh, the Harvest Rock Church that not only has a campus there in L.A. County, but uh, has campuses all over the country, uh, received uh, similar edicts uh, from Governor Newsom that they were not allowed to meet. We particularly fought against the chanting or singing ban. Uh, so there was one particular order uh, that we targeted in Governor Newsom's extensive order uh, that referred to chanting and singing uh, and were able to fight alongside four other churches within uh, the state of California that ultimately made uh, their case all the way up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court and its emergency docket was able to receive that case and pronounce victory for those California churches. Uh, it was an injunction that we won that was so expansive that the court went as far to say that never again in history or never again in the future of America uh, will California be able to target or single out churches and their ability to worship. The lawsuit proved that L.A. County's health guidelines were unlawful. But even if the court case had gone the other way, Grace Church still would have opened her doors because the church cannot submit to an unholy, unjust law one that doesn't allow it to carry out its divine mandate. That's a point John MacArthur has been making his whole ministry. Listen again to what he said 
during that Zoom call at the very beginning of the pandemic when Grace Church was choosing to not meet for in-person services. If persecution comes and they target us and say, you can't meet, you can't preach, you can't proclaim the gospel, then we say we have to obey God because we have a divine mandate. And listen to this prescient clip from a November 1975 sermon from John MacArthur. There may be times when you will go to court. And there may be times when I would go to court. But the issue would be this, and I've looked this through carefully in the scripture, and this seems to be a clear indication that wherever the word of God or the work of God is at stake, I have the right to claim my legal privileges. Wherever the word of God or the work of God is at stake, that's when I have the right to claim my legal privileges and make some demands. I wouldn't go to court if some guy took something of mine, I'd just forgive him. But if the government came around here and said, you can't preach anymore, then I would because I'd say, you're not talking about John MacArthur now. You're not impinging upon my rights. You're beginning to get into the category of what God wants done in the proclamation of his truth. And our Constitution provides for religious freedom and the liberty to express what I believe. And I believe I have the right to that privilege and that freedom. And in that case, I would go to gain the right that is mine. But it wouldn't be in a personal issue. It would be when the word of God or the work of God was at stake. Again, that's 1975. Clearly, this whole obey and resist the government thing isn't new. Obviously, God ordained government. That is laid out clearly in scripture. But it should also be obvious from the condition of humanity that they need to be restrained. This is a fallen world. Everybody in it is corrupted, corrupted to the core, born corrupt. And they get, they get more corruption as they accumulate the corruption of all the people around them. Uh, then they are blinded by Satan, the god of this world, who blinds their minds. They are the children of Satan. They do what their father Satan does, and he's a liar and a murderer. So you have in the entire human race just a looming massive disaster unless there's some agency that can control that. That's the good role of government. We are watching what happens when you weaken government's power over evil. And the cry is coming, I think, pretty loudly and clearly that we need to, we need to go back to the way it used to be. So we're, we're looking at an illustration of the problem when government doesn't take tight control over evil. And that is exactly what God designed it to do. That would be, for government to do that would be enough for government to do. That would be, that would be the whole picture from a biblical standpoint. You don't see much beyond that. So the way this has worked in our situation is the government has abandoned what it's supposed to be doing and it tried to assert itself in areas it had no business being involved in. It would surprise people to know this, that when we were in the middle of the lawsuit um, and we were well represented by uh, attorneys, constitutional attorneys, they met together and they concluded that we had 1% chance to win the case. That 1% chance. Um, and these are, these are the guys that are fighting on our behalf and they have all the right data. And they thought we had a 1% chance. Well, I love that because 
God is the God of the 1% chance. Um, he gave us complete and total victory. They took away every fine, every, every jail sentence, every what they call health department ticket. They paid all the legal fees, almost up to a million dollars. They, they basically rolled over on absolutely everything, and they stunned our attorneys. So we don't believe this was a case that was won on a human level. So I just want to say how grateful I am for the Lord's protection and providence, because even the guys representing us thought we had virtually no chance to win. Our commitment to the Word of God, our commitment to, to be the church, I've learned long ago that I'm not in charge of outcomes, but I am responsible for faithfulness and obedience. So we put our trust in the Lord Jesus, who is the head of the church. And through the whole thing, there was just a sense of joy and uh, exhilaration in my heart to see how it would, it would all end. Because I knew he was in control of it, and whatever direction he took it would be for his glory and for our good. And uh, his hand of blessing was on us in ways that we've never seen in, in the, the long history of Grace Community Church in my 53 years there. The lawsuit ended on August 31st, 2021. The state of California and Los Angeles County paid Grace Church's legal fees, totaling $800,000. In Alberta, James Coates came out of jail on March 22nd, 2021 and never returned. Today, his church is thriving, free of government intrusion. As we thank God for our governing authorities, praying for them, submitting to them, and at times resisting when they try to usurp authority that only belongs to God, we have one final responsibility toward our political leaders. And we talk about that in our third act. Act three, preach to the government. I couldn't decide where to begin this act. I thought about reading from 1 Kings 18, where the prophet Elijah confronts Ahab, the king of Israel, when Ahab calls him the troubler of Israel. Elijah says, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and you have followed the Baals. A showdown between Elijah and 400 of Baal's prophets follows. Spoiler alert, it does not go well for the false prophets. Or I thought about starting it on the side of Stasny Lane, a busy street in Austin, Texas. That's one of the dozens of places across the country where California's governor, Gavin Newsom, placed pro-abortion billboards. The one in Austin shows a woman sitting with her arms crossed over her knees. Looking at the words, need an abortion? California is ready to help. Under the image in fine print are the words of Jesus from Mark 12:31. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. We won't begin there, but we'll certainly get back to it in a minute. Before we do, let's rewind to the year 2004. At the time, Gavin Newsom was the mayor of San Francisco. One of his first acts in office was to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples. 
Not long after he made headlines for disregarding state and federal laws, he appeared on the Larry King Live show alongside a California pastor named John MacArthur. With respect uh, to uh, the pastor, uh, I just, you know, I'm a, I'm a practicing Catholic. I got married in the church two plus years. Uh, I don't see what we're doing in terms of advancing the bond of love and monogamy and extending that to families, families of same sex, in any way, shape, or form, takes away anything from the church or the sanctity of the union that my wife and I have. I would just like to ask the mayor, as a practicing Catholic, do you believe the Bible is the Word of God? Yeah, look, Pastor, I'm not going to get in a theological debate with you. That no, would that's be not a theological debate. That's just a straight question. Do you believe the Bible is the authoritative Word of God? Yeah, I, I, with respect, I guess I do. Now the response. Well, then the Bible says when God created man, he said one man, yeah. one woman, cleave together for life. That's a family. Jesus in the New Testament reaffirms that. All the writers of the Old and the New Testament affirm it. Um, adultery, bestiality, homosexuality was punishable by death according to the Old Testament law because it was so serious in those early years because it literally shattered the hope of civilization. The, the New Testament offers us, of course, grace. Those sins are sins. They are forgivable. Jesus died to redeem us from those sins. We're all sinners. You don't want to categorize sin. But what does the state have to do But the yeah. point at this juncture right. is, well, he's representing the state. He's That's coming back and saying, I'm a Catholic, and I'm a Catholic, and somehow this fits into my Catholicism. And I'm saying, well, what's your authority then? Well, you know what? I, I guess the there's something very Old Testament prophet about that encounter. And it's not just the references to Levitical laws. When John asks the mayor, Do you believe the Bible is the word of God? He is not unlike the prophet Elijah, telling Ahab that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and you have followed the Baals. This wasn't the first time John had called out his political leaders. Five years earlier in 1998, he spoke publicly about the president, Bill Clinton, and his history of immorality. It was, um, well, a number of weeks ago that I had prepared to speak to you on a subject that had arisen in my heart, I think by the prompting of the Spirit of God, because of all that's going on currently in Washington and with our president, I felt like in the midst of all of the opinions that are being given, someone should stand up and offer what the Word of God says about such things. And so I prepared a message on the destructive sin of lying. In the last several weeks uh, as a nation and certainly across the world, we have been overexposed to the extensive pattern of deception and lying engaged in by our president. Uh, to put it mildly, this is greatly disappointing to all of us who would have hoped uh, that a man of character and a man of conviction and a man of integrity would have arisen to such a prominent and critical place of leadership. What we have come to find out, however, is that we have a man in the White House who has, for his life, a habit in which he has engaged, and that habit is a habit of lying and deception and hypocrisy. Fast forward to the year 2012. MacArthur set aside a series from Isaiah 53 to preach a sermon titled, Abortion and the Campaign for Immorality. In that sermon, he calls out one of the two major parties in American politics. While uh, we were gone the last couple of weeks, we were exposed to the two 
conventions that were held, the Republican National Convention and the Democratic National Convention. And I know that uh, politics is the topic among many people today, and uh, I suppose that's natural since it uh, is uh, such a huge part of media exposure. And as you know, I'm not one to talk about politics as such. But I was essentially amazed that one of the historic parties here in the United States adopted the sins of Romans 1 as their platform. This is a new day in our country. Parties which used to differ on economics now differ dramatically on issues that invade the realm of God's law and morality. Before you accuse MacArthur of being a partisan man, listen to this take on the leadership of President Donald Trump. When you look at the president and you realize that for four years there was a revolving door of people going through his cabinet, going through the White House, every time he turned around and saw the news, somebody was resigning, somebody was leaving, and somebody was coming, and people just went through uh, at, a, at a more rapid rate than I had seen in any other presidential experience. And what was the reason for that? First of all, I think it's related to the fact that there were thousands of people working behind the scenes to accomplish things that were being accomplished, but every time the president picked up a microphone, it was about him. And uh, it was about what he had accomplished. John MacArthur is not a man of politics, but he's not afraid to address politicians. He's called out Clinton, Obama, Trump, and others. Like the Old Testament prophets, he will declare God's truth to any leader who flagrantly violates it, Republican or Democrat. 18 years after John MacArthur confronted Gavin Newsom, he does the same when Gavin Newsom becomes the country's foremost promoter of abortion, using billboards across the country to pair the words of Jesus with a pro-abortion message. It seemed to me when, when the governor decided to quote Jesus to support abortion, that he had gone off the edge, and I, I was terrified for his eternal soul. I had met him. I did a Larry King program with him. Um, I mean, I don't know if that's too far. I don't know what God has in mind for him. But the people following him, a whole state full of people and all the people around him in government, I, I felt the, the, the only weapon that we have is, is righteousness, sin or self-control, and the threat of judgment and to call him to salvation. It probably should have been done sooner. I probably should have done that maybe years ago. But zeal for your house has eaten me up. You know, the psalmist said, and then Jesus quoted that when he cleansed the temple. And I, it just seemed to me that I couldn't, I was, I was just shocked that a man would use the words of Jesus to support the slaughter of the ones who are created in the image of God. So it activated that. Um, and my goal, I, I, I would, I'm praying, and our whole church is praying, that, that he would bow the knee to Christ and be saved. I don't think there are political solutions. And I think what happens when people try to find political solutions, they compromise. On September 28, 2022, 
John sent an open letter to Gavin Newsom. Here is John reading his prophetic words to the governor. The word of God pronounces judgment on those who call evil good and good evil. And yet many of your policies reflect this unholy, upside-down view of honor and morality. The diabolical effects of your worldview are evident in the statistics of California's epidemics of crime, homelessness, sexual perversions like homosexuality and transgenderism, and other malignant expressions of human misery that stem directly from corrupt public policy. I don't need to itemize or elaborate on the many immoral decisions you have perpetrated against God and the people of our state, which have only exacerbated these problems. Nevertheless, my goal in writing is not to contend with your politics, but rather to plead with you to hear and heed what the Word of God says to men in your position. In mid-September, you revealed to the entire nation how thoroughly rebellious against God you are when you sponsored billboards across America promoting the slaughter of children whom he creates in the womb. You further compounded the wickedness of that murderous campaign with a reprehensible act of gross blasphemy, quoting the very words of Jesus from Mark 12:31, as if you could somehow twist his meaning and arrogate his name in favor of butchering unborn infants. You used the name and the words of Christ to promote the credo of Molech, It would be hard to imagine a greater sacrilege. Furthermore, you chose words from the lips of Jesus without admitting that in the same moment he gave the greatest commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. You cannot love God as he commands while aiding in the murder of his image bearers. Our church and countless Christians nationwide are praying for your full repentance. Please respond to the gospel. Forsake the path of wickedness you've pursued all your life. Turn to Christ, ask for forgiveness, and use your office to advance the cause of righteousness as is your duty instead of undermining it as has been your pattern. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord. And he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Governor Newsom, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Christian, submit to the government. Resist the government when necessary and always preach the gospel. That's how Christians relate to the government. Remember, God's gift of government possesses valid authority in its proper jurisdiction, but that authority always has its limits, unlike the authority of God. And that's why human government is temporary. And at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, when he returns in glory, human government will be no more. And we live in light of that coming kingdom. And our citizenship is in heaven. And that's why we submit, resist, and preach to the government. 
Thanks for listening to Season 2 of the MacArthur Center Podcast. In our next episode, the final episode of Season 2, we are going to answer the question that everyone has been asking. Who's taking over for John MacArthur? Who's the next J-Mac? Stay tuned for MacArthur and the successor as we continue The Entrusted, the convictions and legacy of John MacArthur. The Entrusted is produced by Austin T. Duncan, Corey Williams, and Jeremy Vuolo. As always, thanks to Cody Signore for his editorial work. Special thanks to Nathan Busnitz, Jesse Johnson, and Jonathan Alexander. For more information about the MacArthur Center, go to macarthurcenter.org. And to learn more about the Master's Seminary, go to tms.edu. ATD. By the way, alcohol kills 3 million people a year. And all the liquor stores were open. I know they were open because I couldn't get any Fresca. And when I wanted to get Fresca, you know what I was told? That all the aluminum is eaten up in beer cans. Fact. Because the bars aren't open, the beer producers are taking all the aluminum. I want my frescoes.